news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to share some exciting news, which is that I will begin offering virtual creative writing courses, beginning with two that will be run over May and June of 2021. I'll share all the details of those courses with you at the end of today's episode, or you can go to my website, www.biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab for the costs and how to sign up. Today's guest is a novelist, teacher, and post-it enthusiast. Her first book, The Most Fun We Ever Had, was an instant New York Times bestseller and has been translated or is forthcoming in over a dozen languages. The novel has been adapted for a series to be written by Claire and co-produced by Amy Adams and Laura Dern. She's a graduate of the University of Illinois, Chicago and the Iowa Writers Workshop. Prior to writing The Most Fun We Ever Had, she spent several years working with homeless children and families in Chicago. She has also been a dog walker, a nanny, a temp, and a communications aide at a woodwind nonprofit. She is not herself a woodwind musician. A native of Oak Park, Illinois, she now lives in Iowa City, Iowa, with her dog, Renee. It's my pleasure to welcome 
Claire Lombardo. I'm so excited today to have Claire Lombardo on my show. For those of you who've listened to more than one show in the last 20, you will have heard me waxing lyrical about the most fun we ever had, which is really one of my favorite books of all time. I've read it twice and I'm currently listening to it on audio, which is a whole other experience. What a brilliant narrator, Claire. Thank you for having me, first of all. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the narrator is named Emily Rankin. And I thought she did such an incredible job. I feel so lucky. Um, She does such a wonderful job differentiating the voices. It's I found it very, I mean, I wrote it. So it's easy to follow in that respect. (laughs) But if you if you did not write it, yeah, I thought she did a a really terrific job talking about differentiating those voices. So for those of you out there who haven't read the most fun we ever had, and if you haven't, why the hell not get on that just to give you a bit of background on it. So It's a multi-generational novel in which the four adult daughters of a Chicago couple who are still madly in love after 40 years recklessly ignite old rivalries until a long-buried secret threatens to shatter the lives they've built. So we've got kind of seven main characters. We've got the two parents, David, Marilyn Sorensen. We've got the daughters, Wendy, Violet, Liza, and Grace. And then we've got another character, Jonah. And so you've written the novel in the third person, but each kind of scene within the chapters does a third person close on each of these different characters. That was just amazing because you're essentially giving us, it's one narrator, but we're zooming in on seven different characters, all of them so fully formed and so perfectly rendered that they feel like people I know. Honestly, I feel like when I finished the book, I just sat there and I I felt bereft because I felt like I wasn't going to be spending time with these people who I absolutely loved. Obviously, some more than others. Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't know what kind of feedback you get, but Wendy was this character that I alternated between absolutely loving and loathing. There were times that I was like, oh my God, Wendy. And there were times that she just cracked me up so much. It was amazing. Oh, thanks. Yes. Uh, Wendy, I think is the character. Well, between Wendy and Violet, they are the two characters that the most frequent feedback I get is either I loved her, or I hated her, or it was some you know intricate mix of the, of the two, which is something I wanted to play with because I feel that that's true to life. There's nobody that I love unconditionally and have never wanted to, you know, like put in a room somewhere, (laughs) particularly in my immediate family. And so I I wanted to replicate that as honestly as I could, um, that sort of, you know, particularly in in sister relationships, um, that you can be so close to someone and love someone so much that you also hate them and, and, you know, want them as far away from you as as possible. So it's been kind of fun to see reactions from readers. And, you know, I, I also hear the reaction too, that people feel like they know these characters. I was talking to a a library group the other night and um one woman said well Wendy is my Wendy is my cousin her name is Anne (laughs) you know I I know her you know like the back of my hand and I was like oh I want to I want to meet this woman but but it was you know it's it's really gratifying as a writer to hear that about these people that you created because that is a a goal for me as a writer is to make characters who feel as as three-dimensional as as possible which is sometimes easier than others. While we're talking about that do you have practical advice to give to listeners on how to go about creating those kinds of characters? 
when they came to you, were they so real that you knew each of them intimately? Or was it a case of the first draft was you finding your way into them? Do you use those character profiles? What's your approach to to characterization? I did not know these characters at all going into the book. And I didn't know some of them even in in late drafts when I had rewritten the book multiple times. So for me, I mean, I think Practical advice would be spend as much time with your characters as you possibly can. So I did a ton of overwriting on this book. This book, you know, that's another story, but this book used to be a lot longer than it than it is at present. And it's a, it's a fairly long book still. But I wrote scene after scene after scene that I knew, you know, weren't doing anything to advance the plot, but that, you know, increased my understanding of how would Marilyn behave in public at a PTA meeting? Or, you know, what does it look like for Wendy to go to a spin class? Or what does it look like if David and Marilyn just have a very pedestrian argument about something that, you know, no reader will want to read in a, in a novel that, you know, has a plot that you need to follow, but it helped me to understand them better. So that was, that was one thing. I also, in a, a, I took a a class on novel beginnings with the novelist, Alan Garganis, who's a, just a real delight. And he read the first 10 pages of my novel. And he said to me after the fact, he said, we have, we have a problem all of these characters sound exactly the same. Um, they also all sound exactly like you. So particularly the four daughters who are all in a, you know, relatively similar demographic to me kind of just had this homogenous single voice. And so he and I were talking about sort of ways to avoid that, obviously. Um, and so his very initial advice was just, you know, put a post-it above your computer with each character's name and a couple of adjectives that very basically describe them. So reductively speaking, I would say, you know, Liza, you know, adjectives for Liza would be analytical and, you know, observant. Um, Adjectives for Grace would be, you know, maybe dawdling and confused, things like that. And so I would just sort of keep those very basic adjectives in mind when when writing about these characters. And from there, you know, the the more time I spent with them, the more individualized they became to me. And the more I felt like I, I knew them as as people. And that became, you know, became easier to, to write them because they felt less like here's a, a one-dimensional being that I made up and more you know, oh, this is a dad who's worried about his daughter, or this is, you know, what it feels like for this person to fall in love in this particular context. So I think my my pat answer is just spend as much time with them as you possibly can. And I think just by default, as with any relationship, the, the more time you spend with someone, the, the better you get to know them. It would be interesting to compare your, your first draft or those first 10 pages to how it ended up, because I could read a certain character, just their dialogue. And I would know exactly which character was speaking. Like Violet spoke in these fractured phrases all the time, like someone who's you know, too scared to get anything out, who's kind of offending people and who's so scared of saying the wrong thing. And most of her things were these little fractured bits. And then you've got Wendy, who's just makes these declarative statements. It's like dropping bombs and she, you know, waits to see where they're going to explode. And so, you know, they, they were all so wonderfully, wonderfully distinct. And I love what you said about writing scenes that readers never got to see, because I honestly believe that characterization is like this iceberg principle. You know, what the reader sees in the book is the tip of the iceberg, but what you as the author needs to know is this huge mass underneath, you know, how they would behave in situations that won't find their way into the book. And so, you know, I tell my students that nothing 
is ever wasted. Even if you've kind of written yourself into a corner, anything that you've written is going to serve getting to know that character better. So you've proven that. Oh, thank you. No, I think that's, I think that's really terrific advice to give students, especially too. I mean, it's, it's something I, I was a student when I was writing this book, it helped me, you know, writing through things helped me, you know, it was often, and I I went through this recently with the draft I was working on, I would be writing pages and pages where I was just like, this is terrible. And this is never going to go in the book. And, but it was helping me, you know, and not even stuff that would be appropriated for a, you know, a different piece of work, but just bad writing or, or writing that feels like it's, it's not flowing. Um, It's still doing essential work of getting you as the writer acquainted with the story. So yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and that's why getting that critic's head out of the way when you're drafting is so important because the critic is saying, this isn't very good. It's, it's why are you spending time with this? It's a waste of time. It's not going to find its way into the novel, but it's serving the purpose that it's meant to serve. So not everything that you spend time with when writing a novel will find its way onto the page. Even things you think will find their way onto the page get greatly edited down. Were you the one to mostly edit down your novel if it was that much longer or was it your you know, your editor at your publishing house that did a lot of that work for you? You know, so I had sort of, there were, this book had three lives, I guess. Um, my, so the first draft of this novel, I came to graduate school with an 813 page manuscript, which just like, like the worst possible person you could ever be is like coming in with that much paper. But <laughs> I very fortunately had the novelist, Ethan Kanan was my, he became my mentor in grad school. He was my thesis advisor and he very, very generously just spent a year with me on this just absurd this manuscript that was very you know very flawed and one of the things that he told me initially was he said just mathematically go through every single scene in this novel and cut it by 10% and just start there and we'll you know kind of just like trimming your hair or something and I kind of learned that was so helpful because I you know you can go through and you can cut inessential lines of dialogue you can cut redundancies you can cut jokes that only you think are funny of which I have many, (laughs) many killed darlings in that respect. And also the sort of masturbatory, like flowery writing that is, is really fun to write and feels really, you know, intellectual and poetic, but doesn't do anything to advance the plot or advance the emotional art. So that was sort of the first go through. And then my agent read... I don't know how many drafts of this novel. And it grew during that time to, I believe, 920 pages. And I can't even talk, you know, it was just such a, such a nightmare. And I thought it was shorter, but the, something was wrong with the font and the pagination was off. And my agent called me and she said, I thought you were going to cut 200 pages of this, not add a hundred. And I just started crying. (laughs) And so she was really helpful in kind of determining, you know, which arcs are absolutely necessary, which characters are, you know, standing, standing up off the page. And then my editor at Doubleday, Lee Boudreaux, who is just the best. I am so lucky. She was incredible. I mean, she's an incredible reader for a variety of reasons, but she has such a great ear for pacing and was able to just go through and say, hey, you know, page 417, things are lagging. Like I'm, you know, for some reason, the pages aren't turning as fast. She has this really, really almost musical ear for, you know, how, how story is moving. You know, I will say, 
this book went to auction and I had, I was very fortunate to have a number of editors interested. And many of them said, I want this book, but it has to be half as long. Um, and one of the reasons that I knew that Lee was the editor I wanted to work with was that she said, I, I'm not going to worry about the length. This book is going to be as long as it needs to be. We're just going to kind of feel out what that, what that means. And so she didn't give me some arbitrary, this book has to be 350 pages or, you know, this book has to be X number of words. It just was kind of a, we're going to go back and forth and take everything out that doesn't need to be there. And we're going to push it as far as we can. I was very lucky to get someone who was able to look at a 700 page manuscript with that kind of, of generosity. She was so right because the book was as long as it needed to be. And I know a whole bunch of people who get so freaked out when they see a thick book. And I'm like, I like big books and I cannot lie. And <laughs> I, I always feel like I'm getting my money's worth with a, with a bigger book, you know, then paying the same amount for this tiny little skinny scrawny book. But you know, there are novels out there that I felt really big novels that I felt would have benefited from a lot of editing. And I know it's probably sacrilegious to say this, but Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch to me was about a hundred pages too long. I really felt like I loved that book. I love her writing, but I felt like it could have been edited down with your book. It was exactly as long as it needed to be. Oh, and something else you said, which I, I really love when you said all these masturbatory phrases that seem so lovely in your head, because this is something that beginner writers seem to think writing is about. They seem to think it's about all these metaphors and similes and describing the sky in the most poetic way possible. And they look at me like very skeptically when I say to them, just say something in the most simple way that you can say it. You know, don't use big words. Don't use flowery purple prose. Say it in the most simple way. And then when you have one image that's really like the sucker punch image that gives you the oof, then throw that in because it'll stand out so much more amongst writing that is just, you know, straightforward. And they seem to, to be suspicious of that advice. So I love that you said that. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. If you use things like that sparing, like use the like really fancy things in your arsenal sparingly, don't blow them all because they will stand out. Like you said, I think for me, I, you know, I, I read a lot for work. I read, you know, I've read application manuscripts to MFA programs. I read as a teacher, I read as a, you know, other people's work as a writer. Um, and it's never, I mean, of course there's beautiful sentences that I've fallen in love with, but I don't care how beautiful your sentences are if I don't care about the lives of the people on the page, or if I don't, you know, care about what happens next. And I don't even mean that I'm not a plotty writer and I'm not a plotty reader, but there has to be some emotional core that I care about. And emotion is very rarely drawn from that kind of overdone. Here's 17 paragraphs of someone thinking in a way that people don't actually think. <laughs> and that's another thing too, is that, you know, human thought and human speech is often quite inarticulate, at least mine is, I, you know, I would shudder to think what the inside of my head looks like. And though, as I'm, as I'm speaking right now, I'm interrupting myself, I'm stammering, I'm, you know, it's often not beautiful. And so for someone, you know, I'm, I consider myself a very realist writer. I'm very interested in, as I said before, replicating actual human beings and actual human beings are often not very pretty. <laughs> you know, their speech is not physically some, many people, are, but uh, human speech is often not very polished. So. Okay. So you said you're not really a big plotter kind of writer with you. I can definitely see that, you know, well, 
my sense is is that character is what's more most important to you. Exploring a character, really getting to know them, and then the plot kind of follows from there. But in terms of structure, this is something that you did that really fascinated me. And just for the listeners out there, remember that plot is what happens in your story. It's A happened and then B happened. And as a result of that, C happened. And then they spiraled out and and the following all happened. Whereas structure is the manner in which you order the information in terms of the book. So just as an example is Claire's novel spanned more than four decades. I think it's 40 something years, 41 or 42 years round about there. And there are flashbacks that go back to when the parents met in the 70s. And then it goes to 2016. So in terms of structure, Claire could have structured it very linearly in terms of the time frame. She could have started when the parents met and written the whole story in a linear way and presented that to the reader that way. She could have had like a part one, a part two, a part three. She could have structured the story in alternating chapters having different characters narrate each of the chapters, which she didn't do. She had multiple viewpoints in each kind of chapter. And you started the story, Claire, not right at the end of the book. Um, It was Wendy's Wedding, which is sort of like near the end, certainly way further than than the 70s. So can I ask, how did you reach the decision of how to structure the book the way you did in terms of things happening now and then flashbacks and, and all of that? Was that an organic process or did you sit there with post-it notes trying to figure it out? Yeah, it was the least organic process. Uh, yeah, it did not come about easily. It and I have many, many, many post-it notes. If I were in my office, I would I would show you. I have a wall covered in them. I wrote this book so messily. I wrote it sort of a, you know, I wrote it out of order. I wrote the scenes that I wanted on the days that I wanted to. I kind of wrote however I was moved to write. If I was particularly interested in Liza one day, I would write about Liza. I wrote with zero conception of plot or forward motion or narrative momentum or apparently having readers who would, you know, be able to make sense of the manuscript. So the first draft of this novel was, I kid you not, it was a series of just out of sequence vignettes. So sometimes we would start, you know, we would spend a page in 1973 in Marilyn's point of view, and then we would go to 2006 in Grace's point. I mean, it was insane. It was just, and it was, it was fun for me. It was sort of like, you know, I had this, I think, lofty notion at the beginning of like, Ooh, if readers really care about this book, they'll want to do the work. Readers do not want to do Like I, as a reader do not want to do that work. And so I don't know how many times I restructured the novel, but I ultimately decided on the sort of back and forth. There's essentially two narrative arcs running parallel to each other. Well, they're, they're braided together. And that ultimately ended up being the way that that felt like, you know, worked the best. And I, I wanted the two arcs, I wanted the past and the present to be in conversation with each other. Um, but I also wanted my readers to not hate me. <laughs> so I kind of had to keep, you know, the, the past arc is with the exception, as you mentioned, of that, the prologue, which goes out of chronology everything is is in order so you don't have to you don't really have to pay a great deal of attention to the chapter headings hopefully I again don't because I wrote the book and <laughs> haven't haven't read it in a while but I, I wanted the reader to be able to tell you know okay we're in Wendy's voice okay you know she's around this age so it's it doesn't matter if it's 1998 or 1990 you know etc but yeah it was a very much 
it was like doing a, a giant, terrible math problem or a big jigsaw puzzle or something, which I'm not good at. So it was, you know, very cumbersome and very kind of, I was winging it, um, but it was also really helpful. I have, you know, as I said, I have these giant foam core boards in my office on which I mapped out the story. So it was, you know, a post-it per scene and each, the color of the post-it meant, you know, the, the narrative perspective. And that was really helpful for me to see just sort of visually, okay, here's what my book looks like. And here's, you know, how things are moving and does it make sense for there to be a very serious David and Marilyn scene right next to a, you know, fairly light Wendy scene and, you know, et cetera. So it's something that I do religiously now. I do it with short stories. I do it, you know, when I'm working on longer projects, I always kind of storyboard after I have a draft. I don't, you know, I don't outline ahead of time, but I think it does help to see the shape of a story, the momentum of a story, are we spending too much time in plotline A, B, or C, or in, you know, emotional arc A, B, or C? So it was very much, and this book, you know, as you said earlier, has seven narrative perspectives and is so long uh, and covers a lot of time. So it was, it was a very cumbersome project, sometimes a fun one. Um, and it made for like really nice, I have like installation art in my office now <laughs> because of it, but my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, 
The shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. In, in terms of keeping track of each of their timelines, is that something you had to keep extensive notes on, knowing that, you know, at this year, this is what was happening in Wendy's life, but this was happening, something else was happening in Violet's life, and that Grace was so much younger than them. And so the things that were happening in her life at the same time were perhaps not as compelling. So how do you keep track of, of those timelines? I have, I mean, I have so many terrifying, beautiful minds spreadsheets on my computer and, you know, these physical documents that I drew. And my office was a really scary place for many years because it was really difficult to, you know, keep track of Wendy's getting married this year. So she's obviously, you know, her, her arc is probably more interesting than Grace, who's starting second grade or whatever. But it it was really difficult. And there were many times when things just didn't add up and it would be like, oh, wait, I really need Grace to be a baby, but she's not. Or, you know, I really need this to have happened a long time ago, but it didn't. So there was a lot of sort of finessing and and moving things around. And then very late in the game, I don't know if you had this experience with your novels, but I had the greatest copy editor on the entire earth who... It was the it was the most sort of it was incredibly invigorating and like very scary and humbling experience to come you know I, I got this manuscript back from my copy editor and see you know she would know like well you said that Grace is six here but actually she would only be five because her birthday's in like just these insane kind of and you know that that board game actually wasn't released until this year and so which was such a you know a wonderful gift because those are the the embarrassing mistakes that you get really hostile emails from readers about. <laughs> <laughs> they get worked up about yeah. stuff like that. I I had my copy editor going, you said it was a full moon, but it wasn't. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. The stuff, the attention to detail, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's I feel like copy editors must have just the most fascinating brains because they're so highly literary, but also so rooted in fact and science and math even. So that was a, a hugely helpful. And sometimes like at the 11th hour, I remember getting an email that was like, hold on, that street only runs east-west. And I was just like, oh, thank you so much. You know, <laughs> It's incredible. Can I ask you about your balance of you know, we talk to creative writing students about showing versus telling. We talk about scenes versus exposition. And I remember in the beginning being super confused as a writer, what's the difference between showing and telling? And when I finally grasped that difference, I then wanted to show everything because I thought, okay, telling is bad. So now everything must be a scene, even if, you know, they're just driving to the store. And then you start to realize, okay, a novel needs to be a balance. There needs to be exposition. And then there's scenes, et cetera. And I was actually 
teaching a class yesterday and said to them that if they want to see a phenomenal balance of showing versus telling to get your book, because mm-hmm. there are bits, you know, the, the scene just runs and it's these two characters will be having a conversation and the conversation super compelling. And then you'll put in this kind of expositional bit. And normally it would slow things down, but it never did with yours. It felt like whatever information we were getting at that time was kind of integral to our understanding of the nuance of the scene. Is that something that's a um, skill of yours as a writer? Because I feel that as writers, we all have things that we're really good at instinctively. And then there's things that we have to work at and we have to develop. So was this something that was, you know, something you just came to writing with and you felt your way into that? Or was it something that you had to learn and pay attention to? I mean, I think for me, that balance is more of an intuitive thing than it is something I give a lot of conscious thought to um, as I'm writing. I think after the fact, I, I will go back and sort of see we're spending too much time in either one, in, in scene or in summary. Writing scene has always been my my very favorite thing to do. And like you said, it was sort of, you know, I was told that that's what you're supposed to do. Things are supposed to be what's happening in real time and you're not supposed to dwell in, as we were talking about earlier, the sort of flowery prose. But I love writing dialogue. It's always come easily to me and I find it the most kind of kinetic and propulsive way to to get a point across. But I think, I mean, you can't tell everything in dialogue. And so I think for me... It was kind of a, it all comes back to point of view, I think, like what, you know, what the characters would be thinking about at any given time, what the characters would be showing us instead of telling us. And I see that, you know, I'll see that with students where suddenly the narrator is telling us all of this information that we don't need to know that the character herself would not be thinking about. Like, I don't look at my my dog and say, my dog Renee, who is three years old and her birthday is in December. Like, I don't, I, I'm not thinking with that degree of specificity. When I'm walking around my neighborhood, I don't think I'm turning left. You know, I'm, I, and so I try to be mindful of being true to the point of view of the character. And the characters will help you out in that way. They help you out as a writer. They will, you know, typically give you the information that you need if you just stay really deeply in their heads. Um, so I, I very much found that to be true. But I also think uh, the writer Alice Monroe, who is my end-all be-all, you know, favorite writer of all time. Um, and Canadian. Woo-hoo! And Canadian, yes. Uh, <laughs> I've learned so much about Canada because of her. <laughs> she's wonderful. And she's, I feel like every story that she has ever written is a masterclass in how to write anything. Um, Her stories are so novelistic. But she has this really incredible balance of scene and summary and showing and telling. And so you'll start in scene and then suddenly she'll be like, 47 years ago, she was, and you're like, why are you telling us this? But then you find out why. And so I think, you know, I, you know, I read her whenever I forget how to write or whenever I forget why I write. And so I think, you know, I, I sort of turn to others to guide me as to how to how to navigate that space. But it really does come down to point of view for me. Like the characters will ultimately know best what information to share and what to withhold and and how to deliver the information. Um, But my rule of thumb, and I I do say this to my students too, is keep everything in scene that you possibly can um, because it'll... It'll be easier on you as the writer. It'll make your readers happy. And scenes can do so much work. Subtext and spoken dialogue can do just as much work as as the the white spaces between the lines. So I I do keep that in mind as well. And what's important there is, I think, as a writer to get out of your character's way, because I feel like when exposition feels false or it just feels you know, not organic is when we as writers are like, oh, I really feel like my reader should know this, this and this. But 
like you say, it's not something the character would be paying attention to in that moment. It's not something the character would care about. So no, I like the way you said that uh, having characters get out of or getting out of the character's way. I think that's, that's a very good lesson. Let them sort of take the, take the reins. Let's talk about the ginkgo tree. as a literary device you know it's kind of like the symbol throughout the novel it shows it helps shows the progression of time all kinds of things was that something you thought of from the beginning or was it something that you put in to act as a literary device that's a really good question um and my answer is very unsophisticated my answer is twofold i always knew that i wanted there to be a character in this novel who was not a person and i wanted there to be something that outlasted the longevity of this family and kind of threw them into relief and humbled them you know there's there's something kind of humbling about standing next to a tree that has been alive for you know 200 years or whatever so from the get go i knew that i wanted there to be this tree in the yard that had has outlived, you know, Marilyn says at the end of the, or somewhere in the novel towards the end, uh, this tree is older than anyone she knows. It's older than, you know, not only her family, but the generation preceding that. And so I wanted that to exist. It's something I wanted to play with in this book is that all of the problems that these people are having are pressing to them in the moment, but they're not the the biggest problems in the world. So that was important to me. It also provided me with a very convenient outlet for David, who was retired and needed a a hobby. Um, So, but I didn't realize at the time, and I feel so stupid saying this, but I did not realize until the book was published what a massive symbol the ginkgo tree is. Like I've had readers come to me and tell me these incredible stories about specifically about ginkgo trees, which are some of the hardiest and longest living trees on the earth, like in in history in its totality. There is a ginkgo tree that survived the bombing of Hiroshima. Like there's all these incredible stories. And I didn't know that, like I didn't. And so just to sort of show my hand, I will say, you know, maybe all writers are smarter than me. (laughs) That's entirely possible. And perhaps likely, but nothing, you know, not everything in, in this novel was intentional. And so it was kind of a happy byproduct. I would love to just be able to own that and be like, yes, it was this very intelligent <laughs> metaphor that I was drawing. It was not. Um, but, it's, but it's wonderful how you stumbled on inadvertently on something, you know, I, I don't even know that we kind of half ask these things. I feel like there's something subconsciously that we're tapping into. And so we don't give ourselves credit for that. But I feel like, you know, you may not have known all the detail of its history and and all of these things about it. But I mean, there's something that made you choose that tree as opposed to something else. Yeah. I mean, I chose it, speaking of sort of masturbatory writing, I chose it just because they're my favorite trees. <laughs> like I've always just really liked them. And uh, I think the leaves are beautiful. There were two in my front yard when I was growing up and they have this kind of majestic presence and they shed all their leaves on the same day. And it's, so it's raining leaves for a day. And But it was very much just an aesthetic, like, oh, I like those. I'm going to put them in. They also felt very Midwestern to me. And then I moved to the East Coast and there was a ginkgo tree at the end of my block. And I was like, oh, I guess these aren't (laughs) Midwestern trees after all. But but yeah, I do like to think, as you were saying, I think that so much of writing is driven by these weird subconscious things that, you know, manifest themselves in different ways, be it our knowledge of characters or symbols that we didn't intend to put in that end up, you know, having a lot of, doing a lot of legwork for us. And I think the themes that we subconsciously explore as well are things that we're trying to work through ourselves. I'm always fascinated talking to book clubs who'll tell me things about my writing that I had never seen myself. And after they pointed out to me, it's like, oh my God, that's so obvious. How did I not know that? Yeah. Yeah. I think readers have taught me so much about this book. (laughs) 
important. You know, readers are, you know, by default, I think smarter than they're going to, I don't know, like readers will bring things to the book that you never expected, which is so, and sometimes they're not things that you (laughs) wanted, but I, you know, I find more often than not readers will give me these beautiful insights or, you know, readers who have had experiences that are, you know, closer to my characters than I have had myself, which is one of the wonderful things I think about the writer-reader relationship. Um, it is this sort of lovely dance of giving information and interpreting information and you know bringing your own lived experience to, to the table. Yeah, there was this lovely quote about reading. I think uh, I keep forgetting who to credit it to, but it was, it said that books are like mirrors. You can only see in them what you already have in yourself. I think that's so true. You know, the one reader will focus on one particular theme so strongly because that's the thing that resonates the most with them. Another reader won't even pay attention to that particular thing. So it's always interesting to see, you know, what your work taps into. We have blown through our time, Claire. So just to end, do you have any kind of advice to people out there who've got these bits and pieces of paper, who have these random ideas, who haven't been able to kind of weave them together in a plot or in a structure, who are perhaps feeling a bit overwhelmed by the process at the moment? I would say, well, my very general piece of advice, which is read as much as you can all the time and, you know, read things that make you want to write, identify the writers who make you feel like you can't help but tell a story of your own. But I think too, you know, I, my path to quote unquote, becoming a writer was so convoluted and had so many sort of twists and turns. And I dropped out of school twice and I was floundering for years and years and years. And I didn't know I was writing a book for, you know, I'd been writing it for years and didn't know what I was doing. Stick with it, which sounds very sort of Pollyanna and reductive and um, overly flowery. And it's really easy for me to say that, you know, having, having written a book, but I, I do think it requires requires just sticking with it, just, you know, continuing to write, even if, as we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, write those bad sentences, write pages and pages and pages of bad sentences if you have to, because I do think the writing is ultimately the thing and the writing is ultimately the thing that will yield the book. So even if you are feeling discouraged, even if you have, as I did, 800 pages of non-chronological vignettes, stick with it. And I also, saying that one more piece of advice, I guess, is to not force it. You should write the book that you feel compelled to write and not the book that you feel like you should write. And I see that with my students a lot. Like no one's going to care about this one story, even though it's the thing that I actually want to tell. Um, like my writing has to be about these big capital I ideas or, um, and I, I think that's a recipe for disaster. I think going into a story saying, I'm going to tell you a story about why I always use the example, why abortion is wrong, I guess, which I don't think it is, but like people will come into stories with these like big ideas of like these moralistic you know, I'm going to tell you X, Y, or Z. Um, and stories like that, 99.9% of the time end up being so boring um, and so predictable. So don't feel like you should write what you want and not what you feel like you should be writing. I guess that's that's my other sort of big piece of advice. I, I kind of believe in things that my students might call small stories. They think they're small and they're insignificant because like you say, it's not this huge concept story, but you know, I always say to them, it's a good story. Well told, give us someone to root for, give us someone that you know, even if we don't love them all the time, we super kind of invested in them because a Wendy is a perfect example of that. There were times that I just loved her and I was like, oh, 
I want to be Wendy. And there were times that I was like, oh my God, Wendy, you're killing me. But it, you know, it didn't matter whether she was infuriating me or making me laugh. She was someone that I could, could understand. I could get on board with her and I could have read a whole book just about Wendy. And really there's nothing big about Wendy's life. If you look at it, you know, just her life, it's a regular kind of woman and her teenagers are difficult. And then, you know, bad things happen to her as an adult, but none of it is this huge, big concept kind of idea. It's just a person getting through their day, waking up, getting through life as best they can, but it's the way you tell it that makes it so, so compelling. Well, thank you. No, I, I completely agree. I think as a reader, I've always been drawn to those, you know, quote unquote, quiet stories. You have endless fodder too. Like, and look at someone like Alice Monroe. So many of her stories you couldn't, you know, describe what happens in them or what is, you know, distinctive about the narrator, except that you can't stop turning the pages and you, you know, you care so deeply about these lives where, again, nothing extraordinary or terribly remarkable happens. And I, that, that is kind of what the art of fiction comes down to for me is, is the rendering of, I remember, I think it was Alan Gerganis as well, who said, writing is taking ordinary life and turning it into gold, you know, just taking these lived experiences and these, you know, any story as big or small as, as you want and making it, you know, a, a cohesive thing. And that's always been the pleasure of reading for me. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful speaking to you. I've contained okay. myself and I've kept in my fangirling to a minimum, um, <laughs> but a huge, a huge fan of yours. And now for those details on the two creative writing courses that I will be offering in May and June. The first course is called So You Want to Write a Novel? Maybe you've always wanted to write a novel but just don't know where to begin or you had a really great idea but it fizzled out or you finished your novel but weren't able to sell it for whatever reason. Maybe you're not sure if you're headed in the right direction and would like some feedback on your work in progress. If so, this eight-week course consisting of 16 hours of lecture time is for you. Join me virtually once a week for two hours at a time to learn everything you need to know in order to start working on your novel. Learn about structure, pacing, stakes, characterization, conflict, backstory, plotting, dialogue and writing scenes in a practical way that will allow you to apply your learning to your work in progress. Test your idea to ensure that it has legs so you don't write yourself into a dead end after just a few weeks. Work in groups to critique each other's work and to get feedback on your own work and get feedback from me with regards to your strengths as a writer and areas in which you can improve. This virtual course via Zoom begins on the 6th of May 2021 and will run until the 24th of June 2021. Webinars are every Thursday night from 7 to 9pm Eastern Daylight Time. Classes will be recorded in case you have to miss any of them. Then the second course that I'm offering is writing a kick-ass first chapter. Now, most agents and editors who consider your work won't read past the first chapter. If you don't grab their attention in those first few pages, you've lost out on an opportunity to have your work stand out. Spend four weeks consisting of eight hours of webinar time with me learning how to finesse and polish your first chapter into something that shines. Learn all the theory involved in great openings and how to apply them to your own work in progress. Spend two hours every Saturday morning from the 8th of May to the 29th of May, a virtual webinar 
work in groups critiquing one another's work and get personalized feedback from me as well. The online Zoom classes are from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Classes will be recorded in case you have to miss any of them. If you're interested, please go to my website www.biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab for the costs and how to sign up. If you're an own voices author from a marginalized or underrepresented group writing about your own experiences from your own perspective, and if you'd like to attend but can't afford the course, please reach out to me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com to apply. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CC Lira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up.
For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.